Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 45th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How are you today? Doing well. Doing well. So... Um, we keep moving along here with uh, a bunch of headlines and news for everyone and uh, still a lot going on in the world of finance. So uh, another jam-packed episode today, I think. Um, so as always, we'll start and take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on May 5th, and this data is from Coifin. The S&P 500 index is down 1.51% to start the month of May and is down 11.13% for the year. The Dow down 1.9% for the month and down 16.7% for the year. The NASDAQ down 0.9% for the month and down 1.82% for the year. The IWM ETF that tra tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 2.81% for the month and down 23.55% for the year. Look at that performance difference between the NAS and the smalls. Yeah, that's huge. So in essence, you know, technology heavy NASDAQ doing so much better year to date, you know, listeners than, you know, the average small size company. Yeah, and I think it makes sense, right? Because m most of the small caps and i'm doing air quotes are more dependent on the u.s economy right there you go so it kind of makes sense with what is going on right now that a lot you of them have been these... hit harder because of COVID. exactly and you have these big tech companies that are more uh, multinational and can still run with you know u.s consumption going down and people not out and about as much right yep so it kind of makes sense yep sorry to interrupt it's just such, such a stark difference yeah no it was great the Vanguard International ETF, uh, ex-United States, down 1.9% for the month and down 20.47% for the year. The three-month T-bill yielding 0.13%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.2%, and the 10-year Treasury sitting at 0.68%. So uh, last week was a big week for earnings season, Matt, and that has continued into this week. We had a lot of the heavy hitters like Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Apple report last week. And, you know, a lot of these big tech companies, like we just said, have been holding up relatively well and haven't seen that big of a hit um, yet in their earnings. But again, Q1 didn't really account for the whole coronavirus season. Quarantine. Quarantine, yeah. yeah. Um, April jobs report is due out on May 8th. Um, so we'll see what that number comes in at. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be anticipating that, but um, you know, we'll see where that comes in at. I think the headline number they're looking at consensus is right around 7 million in job losses. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. And then uh, you kind of listed a couple questions here that we think the market um, or investors are going to be asking about the market. And it has to deal with, you know, us, again, climbing this wall of worry that we've talked about in the past in the months to come with, 
you know, the data not necessarily being that great, but, you know, why is the stock market rebound so much if the data isn't that great, right? Exactly. Um, so I'm just going to kind of run through these questions and we'll just have a brief discussion against uh, be great. some of these. So the first one we think that is, you know, on a lot of people's minds are, you know, how successful or not antiviral drugs will be in driving mortality rates lower. So I think this is more of a confidence thing for the market and for investors is obviously people want to see these drugs working so they're more comfortable, you know, to go out and about and resume their daily lives, right? Exactly. Um, the second we think that a lot of people are asking are, you know, will states open up quick enough to preserve jobs and small businesses? It's a biggie. So, you know, again, the government did a good job with the PPP to, you know, give businesses this liquidity to keep paying their people. Um, but it's tough because they have to keep paying their people, but they have to keep paying rent and they got to keep the lights on and they got to keep their inventory for like restaurants and that type of thing. So there's a lot of expenses behind the scenes that, you know, the PPP isn't going to take care of all the problems that these small businesses are facing. So, you know, it's going to take time to figure out what it's going to take to get these things back up and running, I think. Yep. Um, will states opening will opening states have to close down again, and if so, for how long? It's too early to guess on that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, how long will these high levels of unemployment rates remain? That again has to do with you how know, quick we reopen, how, how consumption looks. Right, and you know there tends to be a you know inverse relationship with unemployment and the stock market. So if you plotted the unemployment rate. Uh, on a chart against the S&P 500 markets bottom when unemployment bottom or excuse me tops and begins to bottom out or come down lower and vice versa so we're we are waiting to see you know when unemployment starts to kind of roll over again when it peaks and starts to come back down i think that would be a positive for the markets um the next is will we have a second wave of covid this fall or winter and if so how bad Again, this is anyone's guess at this point, sure. and you know, hopefully, we will have a treatment um, that is effective by then. Not necessarily a vaccine yet, but at least a treatment that people again can resume their daily lives and be comfortable going out and about. How will consumers and businesses be spending the rest of the year? Big question. I mean, because again, you know, we're a consumption-based economy, whether it's services or goods. And at the end of the day, that's going to be the biggie is, are we going to see some pent up demand mark um, that we see over the summer, you know, to really kind of give some cash flow influx to some of these struggling businesses right now? Yeah, I think that you are. I think a lot of people are really getting antsy to get out there and spend. And I'm sure a lot of people with, uh, you know, small children in their house are ready for a vacation, just mom and dad, that type of thing. I think you're going to have that. Yep. And I think some of the counter arguments are going to be, well, People have lost their jobs and they're not going to have the income to spend. Well, if I know the American consumer, not that I agree with this, but they're going to put it on credit and they're going to do it anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's been the historical norm. Yeah. So right? I think that that you are accurate in saying that we're going to there is going to be a lot of demand for spending once things do begin to reopen again. Yeah. I mean, you can even take um, airline prices as an example. I mean, real life scenario for you and me, Mark is we have a trip coming up in July. And when we bought our, our ticket, which was this one was a one way flight four hours. And first class was $200 a ticket. 
and that was at the, the peak of the quarantine. And you fast forward to now, and that ticket's seven or eight hundred dollars. Right. Right. Where you know, business class would be more than two hundred dollars six months ago. <laughs> exactly. You know, so, so to see that price like, go up, just people are starting to peg when they can travel, and they're booking this stuff, and prices are starting to go back up. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um. Next is how long it'll take to develop a vaccine. You know, it's anyone's best guess at this point. I don't think it does it us any good one to speculate when this is going to happen i've heard you know nine months i've heard 18 months i've heard two years you know i've seen everything on that one and the last one which is interesting is when does the market again focus on the presidential election it's a good one i mean so what you've done is we've listed out eight different questions that the stock market is going to be constantly analyzing for which we believe will derive kind of where it goes in the short term. It's going to be gaming these eight things. Not to say that something else can't come in the list, but I think this is a pretty good summary of what the market's going to be watching for listeners yeah. are, are, are these eight things. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, you know, for us managing money for our clients on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, we're going to be watching those things extremely closely how they affect uh, our uh, profitability in the companies that we invest in. And, you know, that's what we're going to be paying attention to. Yeah. Um, how about we go to uh, tweets and research, Mark? Okay. Okay, listeners, I got a couple here for you today. First is from uh, Braver Research on May 1st. We've talked about Braver before in the past. We've referenced them. So more than 30 million Americans, listeners, applied for unemployment benefits over the last six weeks. While the S&P 500 and Dow Jones Industrial Average ended April with their best monthly percentage gain since January of 1987. So for the month of April, the S&P was up around 13% and the Dow Industrial Average is up around 11% mark. The disconnect between the dismal economic and earnings data and the market's rally is as wide as we've seen in more than 25 years in the investment business. Again, this is from Braver. The full economic and human toll of the coronavirus and actions taken to combat it won't be known for some time, but the stock market is forward-looking, and last month traders were quick to embrace hopeful signs. In our view, April's gains reflect Wall Street's sense that the worst is behind us, and getting back to normal may be less tricky than originally feared. Braver has its concerns in the short term. Meantime, the massive stimulus efforts from the Federal Reserve and central banks worldwide have provided the sense of an economic safety net that is much better than being no safety net, but the fact that monetary policymakers are issuing more, not less stimulus mark, suggests to us that we have a long way to go to ensure the net is wide and strong enough to stimulate a return to economic progress. Mm. So kind of what I'll turn to you is, I do think how proactive the Federal Reserve has been from day one on this, lowering rates, um, getting some of those lending programs dusted off the shelf from the great financial crisis and getting those started again, creating new ones, what the Congressional CARES Act bill has done to kind of target Main Street. I do think these things are going to help blunt the economic blow. But going back to those eight questions that we listed out earlier that I think the market's going to be focused on, you know, it just goes to show you that, you know, I think the Fed has done the best they could do so far. The CARES Act's not perfect, but heck, it's great compared to what they did in 08 09 for Main Street. 
And I'm hopeful that these things, as long as we can start phasing, opening up the economy again, that it'll at least help the patient survive mm-hmm. and yeah. not go into a coma. Right. Right. No, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. So the next kind of um, this is I got a couple data points now um, rather than, say, a viewpoint. So next is from the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, the media would quote them as AEI. So AEI estimates, Mark, that 4.17 million loans um, out of 53 million outstanding mortgages, so it's about 8%, Mark, are already in forbearance as of the end of April, okay? And based upon employment figures, I thought it would be a lot higher than 8% of all outstanding mortgages. So, Mark, I'm curious to see your take on this. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of indifferent about it, I guess. Um, you know, I, I would actually, I would probably agree with you as well. I I would think that this number would be larger. Um, but I think that that's a positive that it isn't. (laughs) Exactly. That's the point. I I, think I expect this number to be higher. Yeah. If we're looking at the glass half full, you know, 4.17 million loans, still a big number right but when you compare it to the outstanding mortgages um you know eight percent isn't too bad i was gonna guess mid-teens yeah we'll flip it around it sounds a lot better if you say that you know 92 percent of mortgages are not in forbearance right exactly yeah exactly so but um, i don't i just thought i thought the the figure was a little light yeah no I, i think that's definitely positive All right, a couple more things. Um, There was a research from Sundial Capital Research on April 30th, and they had a chart, Mark, that investors shoved nearly $700 billion into taxable money market funds in the month of March. Now, why is this important? When you look at history, including previous sell-offs, okay, talking the fourth quarter of 2018 as an example, I'm going back to the great financial crisis. This is this figure of 700 billion going into taxable money markets is four times the previous record month in history. And so why am I making such a big deal out of this for listeners? That money eventually has to find a home. And in my opinion, it's not going to find it in a money market fund that's yielding less than 1%. Mm -hmm. So what I wanna throw out there for listeners is in previous sell-offs, at some point, this money comes back into the market and finds a way to earn a return. And so it's not gonna be instantaneous, but I wanna see what what your opinion is. Yeah, well, I wanna make the argument that it's gonna come into the market a lot quicker because interest rates are so low. That's a good Um, point. I I was gonna talk about this later, but I think this is a good point to talk about it now. There was um, a blog post written by uh, Ben Carlson on his blog, A Wealth of Common Sense, and we talk about Ben's stuff a lot on here, but he makes a great case for why stocks haven't fallen further and why stocks have rebounded so quickly off the lows on March 23rd, and it has to do with the low interest rates, right? So he says, U.S. stocks have never gone into a crash with lower rates than we had this year. And as with most bear markets, the flight to safety has pushed those yields even lower, currently at less than 0.7%. And this article was written on April 28th. 
to get a better sense of the difference between market crashes over the past 50 plus years and the current iteration, here's a comparison of the rates at prior peaks. Here we go. Okay. So bear market begins in 1980. The yield on the 10 year was 12.7%. 1987, the yield on the 10 year was 8.8%. Uh, bear market begins in 2000. Yield on the 10 year is 6.3%. Bear market begins in 2007, 10-year yield 4.5%. Bear market begins 2020, yield on the 10-year is 1.6%. So 12.7% back in 1980 sounds pretty good right now, you know, but are we overcomplicating this? Is that why the market has been so resilient is that there literally is just a lack no, of alternatives. There's nowhere else to go. I mean, you can't live for 25 years or 20 years off of a 1.6% yield, can you? You can't. That money's not going to last. You can't. You can't. So are we, are all of us in this industry, or is every investor, every speculator out there as to why we haven't fallen 50%, is it because interest rates are so low? And that's the simplest answer because there's nowhere else for this money to go. I think that's a big part of it, Mark. I think the other thing I'll kind of throw out there is companies in general are their balance sheets are stronger. Now, there are sectors, energy, travel and leisure, where, say, the balance sheets might be stressed because of their high overhead cost, mm -hmm. right, and their lack of revenue right now. But I would say in general, coming into this COVID situation, the balance sheets look a lot better than they do going back to 07 and 08 before that crisis. Yeah. I think that's another big factor that has, you know, say a savers um, debating between a high dividend yield stock to generate some income, right, to pay their living expenses, or a conservative bond that's yielding less than 1% right now. That's why you're finding money going into these dividend-paying stocks. Mm -hmm. People are willing to take a little bit more risk to get that higher interest rate or that higher dividend. Right. And I think that gives people a false sense of security because companies can cut their dividends. They right? can. Walt Disney, I think, just did last night. Yep. Um, you know, there's the the dividend aristocrats that over the past, they've, you know, they haven't cut their dividend or they increase their dividend every year for the past how many years. So, I mean, maybe people can look to that for more stability. But there are companies out there that people feel are strong companies that still can cut their dividends. So people just need to be aware of that, that if they're investing in a company purely for the dividend, that that could get cut at any time. You could. They need to preserve cash. Right. Yep. I know. I thought it was interesting. I wanted to bring that up to listeners, the fact that so much money went into money markets in March and that at some point, in my opinion, a lot of that has to come off the sidelines. And it's, in my opinion, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And, you know, I could also argue, Mark, that a lot of people that sold out, they're going to end up, if they go back into stocks, most likely buying back in at higher prices. Because by the time it feels comfortable, the move's been made. Right. Right. Obviously. All right. I got one more. And this will have somewhat of a parallel. And this is a stat, and it makes me concerned. Okay, so this is from um, the custodian TD Ameritrade. Okay, and they um, issued this uh, in regards to their daily average client trades. Okay, 
Now, when the whole um, brokerage uh, industry slashed their commissions in the fourth quarter of 2019, you know, and and for people that aren't familiar with the commissions and how this stuff works is that if you wanted to place a trade through, you know, TD Ameritrade, Schwab, Fidelity, and you just had a brokerage account that you managed, typically it would run you, you know, $4, $4.95 per trade mm-hmm. around roughly. Yep. And so in the fourth quarter, they all had a, uh, a race to zero uh, because, you know, a lot of these custodians, they have the ability to make money in other ways um, by increasing their volume. And I think we should save that conversation for a different day. But the point I'm trying to make is the actual number of trades has soared, I mean, through the roof. So in the fourth quarter of 2019, they were averaging in a given day around a million uh, trades at TD Ameritrade. TD Ameritrade, yeah. Okay. And then you fast forward to now, it's almost at an average, almost at 3 million trades on average a day. Okay. So... My question to you is, do you think it is smart that the average investor has dramatically increased their trading activity now that the commission issue is no longer there? No, I don't think it is. And I think that it's even more enhanced because of what's going on right now. You know, people are freak out and they read one or two news headlines and then go into their, you know, TD Ameritrade account, Fidelity, Schwab. Robin Hood account and they hit a button to sell everything and you know then they read a headline a week later and say hey you know Gilead's coming out with this this treatment we got to get back in and it's just playing this game of jumping in and jumping out and I think that there's some sort of allure to it Matt and what I mean by that is I think people get stimulated by you know making these trades in their accounts because there's some sort of sexiness to it that they're drawn to like gamblers are with blackjack or roulette or something like that. And I think a lot of people, you know, think that this is kind of like a game and consciously or subconsciously, whichever way they think about it, that's what's making them do this. And no, I don't think it's a good thing for the everyday person to be you know, going in there and, you know, placing trades every single day. I would absolutely agree. And I also think there's an aspect of it, Mark, that I need to be doing something. I have to take action. I have to, in essence, I have to do something to protect my account. Right. And so that also looking back at the um, immense amount of volatility that we had in the month of March, kind of, you know, we're reading into that psyche people had. And then you had that rush back in after the low of, of, of March 23rd as people started, you know, buying back in. You had that that FOMO, that fear of missing out hit hard. Yeah, I do. And, you know, I think this would be fine if everyone in this uh, category had a, a short term trading plan or trading system that they've done research on and back tested and they take their signals and it's just traded more frequently. That would be fine with me. But this is not that. This exactly. is people making impulse decisions. Yes. Going in without a game plan and doing things based on emotion, I think. Yes. Um, which we've talked about several times, which tends is to not work out very good. Right. 
Right. So I just want to throw that out there and I'm going to send yeah, it back to you. Interesting. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. And we'll do our best to get these two charts that Matt talked about, the money flow and money market funds and TD Ameritrade uh, average client trades. We'll do our best to put those on the show notes. And listeners, you can find the show notes at www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Hover over the podcast tab. And when you do that, you'll see the link for the show notes. So uh, this week's financial planning topic of the week comes from uh, Blair Duquesne. And uh, Blair uh, is with Ritholtz Wealth Management. And all those people over there do a really good job of getting content out. Um, And she wrote this uh, blog post titled, A Bird in the Hand. And her blog is called The Bell Curve. So Blair gives a few tips here on what investors can be doing now to take control of your finances. Again, we've talked about, you know, we talked briefly about some of the points that she makes in this article that I think it's important to reiterate, to focus on what you can can control during these times. And I know people might be ready to hit me in the face because I've talked about this so much, but I think it's that important to keep talking about it. Yeah. Focus on what you can control. Right. Yeah. Um, so turning to Blair's article, some of the things, um, you know, she lists is obviously number one, what we've talked about is invest cash on the sidelines. So be prepared for immediate short-term losses. If the market continues to sell off, no one can call the bottom with precision And now is one of the best times to buy stocks since March 2009. And I think for this people, we have to remember that, you know, when me and you are going to place a trade, we're looking 12 to 18 months out. We're not looking a week or four weeks out. Right. So we have to keep the long term thinking, especially with retirement money that, you know, we're letting our thesis play out over the long term, not over a couple of weeks. Exactly. Uh, Number two is rebalance your portfolio. So if the amount of stocks in your portfolio is lower than your original target, it's time to rebalance. You should sell some bonds and buy enough stocks to bring your portfolio back to its target. And I know, Matt, that this kind of goes completely against the traditional investor psyche, um, you know, to get more aggressive in market sell offs. But if you want to increase your bond positions now, probably too late to do that you you should have had that before this happened yeah i would agree um number three is identifying opportunities for tax loss harvesting so some of your investments may be below their purchase price the cost basis that is used to calculate capital gains so blair goes on to say you can sell these securities book a tax loss and reinvest immediately into something similar For example, sell the ABC S&P 500 index fund and buy the XYZ S&P 500 index fund. Securities sold at a loss cannot be repurchased within 31 days to avoid the IRS wash sale rule. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I know, you know, people, again, with investor psyches, they don't like to realize losses, but this could help in tax planning this year and the years to follow. So I think it's something to consider. Yeah. And this is in regards to their non-retirement accounts. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yep. And carry carrying forward losses that you're actually realizing. Correct. Um, the last thing Blair recommends is to accelerate your savings. So if you're able, increase your 401k savings to front load contributions for the year. 
And by front loading that, she means increasing what you're contributing now to get more money into the 401k while the market is down. And then you can lighten up that load as you get later in the year. Um, you should also consider front loading 529 plans, um, IRAs, Roth IRAs, and SEP IRA contributions. Um, and we've talked about this before, so we won't, you know, beat the horse here on this. Um, I think I meant to say beat the dead horse. Is that the phrase? <laughs> beat the dead horse. I knew exactly what <laughs> you and I spent so much time together. I knew exactly what you were saying, by the way. I, I, I said that and I was like, that didn't come out right. <laughs> um, this is I'm, live, folks. We do one take yeah. and that's it. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to start using that now. I'm just going to say beat the horse. Um, and then, I'm waiting for a listener to email us on this. It's going to yeah. be great. It's going to happen. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not for animal cruelty. It just came out, uh, came out a little differently than I had planned. Um, so she also lists a few things about what you shouldn't be doing with this bird in the hand. Okay. okay. So number one is do not invest short-term money in the stock market. Something that has become crystal ding, clear ding, 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 ding. in the past few days is how woefully unprepared many Americans are for a short-term loss of income. Maintain a cash reserve of three to six months at a minimum. And I just, you know, had a conversation with a client on this, Matt, that um, you know, she has some um, additional money that she wants to either invest, but she needs some of that to pay tuition in a couple of months. And I'm like, I don't want you to, to invest that money. I want you to have that to pay tuition if that's what it's for. Yes. So, you know, I think now more than ever, it highlights that you, you know, short term, and I describe that anywhere between three to seven, eight, maybe as much as 10 months, depending on the situation, that you should keep that money liquid if you know you're going to need it, you know, in the short term. So along that same time, uh, parallel, that, that same kind of uh, thought process, Mark, what comes to mind for me right now is there are a lot of clients looking at it and saying, wow, okay, um, year to date, you know, let's say you're down, you know, mid single digits right now, right? S&P's down low double digits. And some clients will sit there and say, I'm just tired of these kind of month, six week, eight week sell offs. And, you know, I want to find a better way. And the problem I think a lot of clients have right now is they need equity exposure because interest rates are so low to achieve the rates of return long term that they need to come up with their retirement income, their withdrawal rate that they need. And I think there's a lot of people out there that want to have their cake and eat it too. And the point I want to make to listeners is the sacrifice that you have to make in order to earn higher long-term rates of return is you have to be subjected to periods like the last two months, like the fourth quarter of 2018. You're going to experience short-term periods where the market sells off. And for that sacrifice, what do you get? You get the ability to earn not just 1% in a US Treasury bond, you know, you're going to have the ability to earn substantially higher rates of return over the long term. And what are you sacrificing again, is those periods of volatility. And so I think everyone's trying to chase this holy grail of getting these equity like returns and not having to deal with the last couple of months. And that is unrealistic. Mm -hmm. 
And I, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I've been, you know, I do research when I have time to, to figure out strategies and how we can implement different things in our practice, you know, to increase return and minimize drawdowns. But Absolutely. The thing is that if you want increased returns, that's going to come with higher drawdowns. When I say drawdowns, it is, you know, an account's peak value to whatever it falls to. So, you know, the, the value of your account in this instance on, you know, February 27th or something to what it, where it's at right now, how far, how far from peak to trough that it fell. Yeah, or how much it fell at the absolute worst, say, to March 23rd. Right, exactly. Right? So... Typically, I think the rule of thumb is, you know, whatever the annualized return is, the drawdown is usually at least double that, right? In, at the worst point. Yeah. And, you know, I'm okay if people want to try to minimize drawdown, but then they have to be okay with earning less. Over the long term. Over the long term. That's exactly it. That's the point I want to make right there. And I think it's, it's hard for a lot of investors. And here's the thing. People... They, they, they think it's, it's just like in losses, people think they can take until they actually are taking these losses right now. Right. Mm -hmm. So they say, yeah, I'll be fine with earning four or 5% a year. But when you're in a raging bull market and the annual returns are 12, 13, 14, 15%, that ain't going to last. Yeah. I don't know. And again, this is a different conversation. If someone has $15 million and they only need eighty thousand dollars a year to, to to live off of it right different situation then okay have your three four five percent that that's going to work for them yep and that's what i think people need to realize you need to look at it on your own personal situation and see if you're okay with it there you go um number two which kind of goes along just right but with what we were just saying is do not take more risk than appropriate for your financial plan or more risk than your tolerance allows and number three is do not borrow money to invest. This includes margin and security backed loans. This can get messy. So especially if you don't know what you're doing. So unless you have experience with this type of stuff, I would say for the average person, it's not the best thing to do to borrow money to invest. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going on leverage is a risky proposition. Yeah. It's got its upsides, but it's really got its downsides, too. I think I saw something. I think Michael Batnick wrote a post yesterday about the returns over the past three or five years of the S&P 500 ETF and the three times levered bull S&P 500 ETF. So this thing is levered. So when S&P 500 goes up, it's going to go up more than, uh, you know, the S&P 500. I bet the long term returns are dismal. Yeah, they're right at, I mean, the past five years, they're right in line with the regular S&P 500, except, you know, the you returns. a lot more volatility. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There, it, it fell 77% from its peak in February till now, which is crazy. And 99.9% and .9 of people can't handle that. No way. So you just got to be careful with that stuff, and you got to understand it before you decide you want to put some money in there. I thought, I thought it was a great blog post you brought up today. Yeah. Um, so we have a question from Amy this week. So thank you, Amy, for the question. So uh, Amy says, why is it that household budgets are expected to have three to 12 months of operating expenses saved up in case of emergency, but businesses are not? 
or so it seems. Maybe not the small local businesses, but why do the multi-billion dollar businesses that are making, or excuse me, that are asking for bailouts not have some in reserve? It is hard to understand that the airline or oil industry that makes that much money does not have some in reserve, but the average household is looked at as a poor budgeter if they live paycheck to paycheck. So a week of canceled flights would not break them. So this is a good question, uh, Amy, and I know a lot of people are asking it right now. And my initial response to this is that in order for companies to grow and for investors to receive outsized returns in the stock market year over year, companies cannot be sitting on hordes of cash. If they were, then the stock market wouldn't be the wealth generating machine that it has been since inception, right? Companies use their cash to buy back stock, pay dividends, invest in R&D, and without any of that, market returns would be extremely less, in my opinion, if these companies were sitting on hordes and hordes in cash. So do you agree with that? Disagree with that? Have anything to add? I do agree with that. Do you have anything else you want to throw out there before I add something? No. The only thing I would add to that, and I agree with everything you said, Um other thing I would say, Amy, is that a lot of these companies have what I would call high fixed cost. Okay. These industries have that to where it's not just the labor cost. They have extremely high, um, say in the airplane, in the aviation industry, you know, leasing these planes, the maintenance to do them. They have to still pay the, um, the gate licenses at all these airports you know, all that stuff continues whether they have passengers on those planes or not. And I think that is another big reason. It's just they're so capital intensive. And when that revenue goes from, say, even being down double digits to being down close to 100% for a six-week period, that's when you experience these cash crunches that they've experienced. So I think that um, that's another big reason yeah, and to be able to innovate and come up with new products and to serve people's needs, they have to invest this money and do something with this money, and they can't afford to keep it in cash for that long. Yep. Um, you know, so I know where people are coming from with this, but we also have to remember whether you like it or not, and I'm not saying it's for better or worse, but publicly traded companies have a duty to their shareholders. And I know... A lot of people don't agree with that, and you know I'm not saying I agree or disagree with that, but that's the way it is right now. So until that changes, they have a duty to their shareholders, and they're going to utilize that cash to reinvest in their business and produce a return for their shareholders, right? Absolutely. So I think people need to consider that and take the emotion out of out of what a lot of people are feeling right now is that hey, you know these companies that are getting these bailouts. Why aren't I getting a bailout? Yeah. Right. And I think that's why Congress focused the CARES Act to be more targeted towards Main Street mm -hmm. is because of that. They failed to do that back in 08 and 09. They really did. Right. They dropped the ball. And I think that they learned. And once again, I'll, I'll say it again. The CARES Act is far from perfect. But I'll tell you this. 
It's a little t- tremendously better than what they did back in uh, 07 and 08. I don't think Louie agrees with you. I don't think Louie does agree <laughs> with us. So I, I think that probably made it to the mics, but Louie was just growling at uh, the Amazon delivery at the Amazon delivery guy, or he didn't agree with Matt. <laughs> probably we'll never know. <laughs> um, um, one thing I want to throw out there, thinking about air travel real quick. Um, Amy, I saw a chart um, looking at how long it took for um, air travel passenger levels to revert back to normal after 9-11, okay? And it took it till about 2006 for passenger levels to kind of get back to where they were before 9-11. And I think a lot of people right now, Mark, are trying to guess how long is it going to take for people to be comfortable to travel again. And I'm going to throw out a personal opinion. I think it's going to be quicker than people think. I guess too. And um, I'm biased because my whole family is in the aviation industry, except me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know the industry well, but I think it's going to be quicker than people think. I'm not saying it's going to take six months, but I don't also don't think it's going to take five or six years. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and you know, uh, over the weekend, Warren Buffett had his uh, meeting with, you know, uh, investors or anyone that, that wanted to listen in that they usually do in a conference setting, but obviously that can't happen this year. And one of the things that he said was never to bet against America. And he said that for a long time. And I think with the innovation and the the growth that we've seen in this country, I'm in that camp too, that it is very difficult for me to imagine that however this all plays out and however the cards fall that we're not going to figure out a way to deal with this one way or another we always have up to this point exactly you know and if that's you know changes into how people go to restaurants of taking temperatures before you go in or getting these rapid tests out to restaurants that you get tested for COVID-19 until you can go in and have a meal whether it's putting up, you know, glass or plexiglass between the cash registers um, at different stores, there's going to be innovations to to get around this and get things back to normal, in my opinion. And I think it is hard to bet against that. I, I really do. It's going to take some time, but you know, we're going to. I wouldn't want to take the other side of it. I'll I wouldn't it that either. Way. Yeah, I wouldn't either. So. Um. That's really kind of the last thing I wanted to leave people with, Matt. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? To- no, I mean, I'll, I'll leave listeners with this. Um, you know, we're not completely out of the woods yet. I mean, when you look at the market in a matter of weeks and not months, you know, you know, continue to invest in line for your risk tolerance and your goals and objectives. It's a very broad general statement. Um, I'm personally more optimistic when the timeline changes from weeks to months. Uh, because of what the Fed's done, because of the Congressional Cares Act, I think it'll help blunt the blow. I think we're going to have pent up demand over the summer, etc. We're going to be watching those eight questions that we listed out that the market's going to be monitoring. I'm going to be monitoring, you know, consumer consumption very closely as things phase in and open up again. And so we'll continue listeners to bring you up to speed in the uh, podcast in the weeks to come. Um, but just uh, just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there for this week, and we will be back with you sometime next week. Um, So thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the 45th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast, and we hope everyone has a great week and a phenomenal weekend. Have a great week, everyone, and send those questions in. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. 
If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.